seated. <clears throat> we continue our study of the Gospel of John, picking up where we left off, which was at a very important point, with Christ being laid in the grave. I'm going to be reading a little more than usual this morning and taking a great sweep of what we read. We'll come back to pick out some of these important matters later, but uh, wanting to preach the heart of the text before us in whole, as a whole, we start with John chapter 19 in verse 40. If you have a Bible and you'd like to, like to read with me, John 19 starting in verse 40. <clears throat> then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the lying cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must Rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. 
Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we also with the eyes of faith would be glad to see the Lord risen. We pray that in your light we might see light this day and gain again the hope that is the birthright of the born again children of God through faith in Jesus in whom we pray. Amen. To be or not to be. That is the question. With these words begin probably the most famous of William Shakespeare's speeches in which Hamlet, torn by guilt and loneliness, considers ending his own life. But he decides against it simply because he does not know what suicide will bring. Will death, he asks aloud, be as a sleep that will end his heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to? He cannot be sure. He does not know. Maybe death is not extinction after all. And if life goes on after death, well, it could be much worse for him. Hamlet shrinks back from death Afraid, conscience, he says, doth make cowards of us all. And so in that famous scene, Shakespeare expressed for all time the great question of human life. What then? What lies beyond? It's such an important question, but one that's not important to ask. It's important not to ask in polite company nowadays. We're in a death-denying society. We don't talk about death. We don't think about death. We do our best to ignore that great shadow that lengthens and stretches out before us and more and more as each year passes. Americans spend billions of dollars every year on creams and lotions that promise to slow the aging process. But they don't spend five minutes contemplating what happens when we finally lose that fight, as we must What is to become of us? Surely there's hardly a more important question that our mortal race must face. And hanging on that answer is the ultimate value and purpose of life, as well as the foundation of morality and justice and any real possibility of hope and joy. You know, somebody said that you're not really ready to live unless you're ready to die. We must deal with this question. It's just too important. And what it implies is too horrible or too wonderful to be simply ignored. Hamlet calls death the undiscovered country. That place from which no traveler ever returns. But that was false. Someone has returned. Not just returned. Come back. Come back transformed, bearing the best of all possible news to our dying race, saying, because I live, you also will live. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the final answer to the great 
question of life. Concerning life after death, our world offers its own promises full of emptiness. But the empty tomb of Christ gives us emptiness full of promise. John, our author, as we've seen, as we've studied this book, is particularly interested in how and why people come to believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, he tells his readers at the end that he wrote this book so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Well, here in chapter 20, the focus is the same. John tells what it meant for this first group of people, his followers, to learn that Jesus was alive, that he had conquered death. And as usual, by the way, he's very selective. He focuses here on four people, Mary, Peter, John, and later Thomas, who were not expecting his resurrection As he points out in the passage, they did not understand the the scripture at this point. They were, in fact, at this point, utterly defeated by his death on the cross. And perplexed on Sunday morning as they arrive at an empty tomb. And I should point out also as we begin that it's a remarkable fact that all four Gospels, as they begin to discuss this account of the resurrection, they identify the day of the week as the first day of the week, and not as we would have expected on the third day. You see, that's what Jesus had promised, that he would be crucified and rise on the third day. You see, we're not just being given here an explanation of what happened three days later or the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. We are also being told why all of a sudden a new day of worship begins on that very Sunday as they meet the Lord himself, worship him, and rejoice. Well, uh, we'll consider, as sometimes we do, the teaching of the passage and then its explanation and application to our lives, or as the old Puritans said, exposition, doctrine, application, Let's look at the passage. It begins with Mary Magdalene finding the tomb open and empty. And by the way, there were some other women accompanying her, which are not mentioned here, but there is that we in verse 2. You can compare the other Gospels. John is, again, being very selective. He's focusing on this woman, Mary Magdalene. She returns and reports to the others that they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid them. We don't know where they've laid them. Peter and John get up and they run to the tomb. Peter goes in, he finds the linens there, but especially this head cloth neatly folded by itself, something that neither soldiers who take, took a body or grave robbers would do, uh, folding neatly a head cloth. So John goes in, he sees this, and he believes that Jesus is alive, but he doesn't yet understand from the scriptures what this rising from the dead means. So the men go home. Meanwhile, Mary returns. She stays by the tomb weeping. She's deeply disappointed. Evil men have killed Jesus. And now they won't even give him a rest or a decent, proper burial. And yet it was even more than that. All the Lord's promises, it seemed, had failed. All the hope seemed to have left the world. There was no more hope to be found in the world. And so... 
You know, often we're like Mary, disappointed. We don't understand the big picture of what God is doing. And she learns, and we need to learn to process our disappointment in the light of a risen Savior's love and care. So she laments, they've taken away my Lord. And she breaks her heart to the nearby gardener. But that was no gardener. Mary, he says, Rabboni. And very dramatically, she understands. In a flash, crushing defeat is turned into total victory. There was Jesus, alive again. She saw him. She spoke to him. She clings to him. She had never been so happy. He was dead, and now he was alive. He is a living Lord, alive for her to love, to worship. Jesus lives. And soon, there will be hundreds of people saying the same thing triumphantly, that Jesus has been victorious over death. And they gave this reason for such an absurd-sounding belief. We met him. He lives. People today, like these disciples, might have their ideas about the way that things are in this world. They've got their ideas on dying and the afterlife pretty well figured out, if there is one. Probably they figured out what they needed to know about God and Jesus and life and death. And that's the way it are. That's the way it is. Sad. But then something happens to them. They meet Jesus themselves. And in a flash, not not the same way that the people in the chapter meet him, of course, but just as truly and just as really, they are astonished to realize he's alive. He is, in fact, still being met by people throughout the world every single day. For he lives He didn't merely come into the world to bring us to faith, but to bring us to himself and to life eternal in him. How unexpected. How dramatic. How wonderful. An overview of the passage that we read. But my question now today that I'd like to consider with you is, why is this good news? Why is this good news? What's all the excitement about? You see, their excitement isn't just because their beloved Jesus, whom they thought was dead, is actually alive. The resurrection of the crucified Lord is much, much more important than that. The word that the Bible uses to describe his victory over death on our behalf is gospel, the old English word that simply means good news. The good news, a common enough word in their day for the kind of good news that was often carried from place to place with the conviction that this was something important, something that everyone needed to hear. The English word gospel, that means good news, is also joined with the word evangelism, borrowed right from the Greek, that simply meant to tell good news. Pretty ordinary words. The event, though, at the heart of the Christian message of the resurrection of a crucified Lord is called the good news. The heart of the message. Why is this good news for the world? Now, if you ask the average American, or for that matter, the average person in the world today, what religion is all about? Yeah, you'd probably say something like this. Well, there's a God, and he cares about how we live. And he wants us to be good and kind to others, 
honest in our dealings and faithful in our relationships. And he wants us to revere him too, of course, and depending on the particular religion, to perform acts of worship. Well, I think many people wouldn't even bother to mention that last part, or if they did, at least put it at the end. How we treat others, though, that's the main thing. That's what religions are about. They teach and encourage people to live a good life, which will be rewarded. Now, what does the Bible teach? Uh, The late Neil Postman was one of the more insightful social critics of our age who gave a perceptive analysis of modern life. He was very interested in the relationship between religion and society. Not a Christian himself. He was, in fact, a Jew. but, But he gives this interesting summary at one point of the religion of the Bible. He writes, quote, There is one God who created the universe and all that's in it. Although humans can never fully understand God, he has revealed himself and his will to us throughout history, particularly through his commandments and the testament of the prophets as recorded in the Bible. The greatest of these commandments tell us that humans are to love God and express their love for him through love, mercy, and justice to our fellow humans. At the end of time, all nations and humans will appear before God to be judged, and those who have followed his commandments will find favor in his sight. End quote from Neil Postman. I think that's all pretty predictable stuff, don't you think? It's so predictable that there's nothing distinctively Christian in it. In fact, you could say with just a few alterations, that is exactly the teaching of Islam, or Sikhism, or Zoroastrianism, or with a few alterations, again, most religions. In fact, if you leave out the God part, you could say that's basically the teaching of atheism. For most atheists believe, for various reasons, that we ought to be kind to one another and that there's some reward for those who do. So it's a fair summary of the teaching of practically all the religions of the world, except one. And that one exception is Christianity. As we find in its central message, nothing commonplace nothing at all predictable, nothing ordinary about its message. Its message is terrifying or electrifying or devastating or exhilarating or confusing or consoling, but it preaches a a cross, and the one who was nailed to it says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as we considered last week, that if sin is man putting himself in the place of God, then shockingly, salvation is God putting himself in the place of man. Christianity then preaches an empty tomb with the one absent from it saying, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Christianity teaches God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is something that is not achieved by us. 
For he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. For our part, we have positively ill-deserved this. But he has done something. And as I say, compare this to the religions of the world. There is nothing predictable about this, any of it. Jesus, if, if Jesus had said nothing more than, be good, they would not have crucified him. And there would be no Christian church, and there would be no hymns to sing, and we would have no good news to proclaim. We would have the message of every other religion. Christianity alone, among all the religions and philosophies of man, can be described alone as good news. Good news. Not good advice. Good news. Something has happened. Something which they shouted from the housetops. The message of the Bible is that God has done an extraordinary and unprecedented thing to save guilty human beings from sin and death. And now the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light, which is how Isaiah described the coming of the Son of God some 700 years before Christ was born to Mary. So if be good had been Christ's message, no one would have fallen at his feet for joy. No one would have run to tell others. I mean, can you imagine someone running breathlessly to find his friend, to grab hold of his arm and say while he gasps for air, I have found the truth. I have met the truth. And it is this. We ought to be nice to people. And if we do, God will approve. Now, Michael Horton vividly put it this way. He wrote, The early Christians were not fed to wild beasts or dipped in wax and set ablaze as lamps in Nero's garden because they thought Jesus was a helpful life coach or role model but because they witnessed the only Lord and Savior of the world rising again. Jesus Christ does not live in the private hearts of individuals as the source of inner peace. He is the ruler, creator, and redeemer and judge of all the earth. That is our good news. And when we learn that the Son of God has died on our behalf, conquered death for us, and brought us to a new and everlasting life in him through new birth. There is nothing ordinary. There is nothing predictable about that. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, it is the first time in the history of mankind that flesh and blood stands beyond the reach of death or the curse or anything, never to die. And that is the moment that we have been waiting for since the fall the resurrection of Jesus was the event that gave life to the world and turned the tide of the history of our human race. The inevitability of death was then turned into the invincibility of life. And so that grave outside Jerusalem became the womb of a new creation from which emerged the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits of a mighty harvest of eternal life. And that's why it is so wonderful and so exciting and so news newsworthy that Jesus is alive. It's not just they were so glad to see him, they missed him for these last few days. No. A fountain of life, eternal life, has broken into the world 
a new creation has begun. That though the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we are here today because of this good news that we might sing it and proclaim it and bear witness to it. For we have met, met the risen Christ and know him likewise as the living Lord. This world, as I said earlier, doesn't want to ask or face great questions. You can't talk about them, but you can hear. You can hear in the church, you can face life's greatest questions, unashamed. Here we can talk about life at its most serious and most glorious and find it all hopeful and wonderful and invigorating. That we have learned for certain that life is not a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, as Shakespeare also put it. Here is the proof that your life and mine has meaning. Here is the power to live a new life with a capital L. Here is the person in whom we find the answer to all things, who is, has died for our sins and risen again that we might live forever in him. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus is not good advice, but very, very good news. And so I say to all of you, as we apply this to ourselves, your life, it is far too important, too precious, not to consider these things carefully and seriously. You have within you a craving for life, do you not? Death is hard to face, even to contemplate for more than a minute. That's one reason why the majority of, Mer of American adults don't even have a will. Or if they have one, like, like we do, it's like 20 years old, right? It's not updated. Be because we fear death. We don't want to think about it at all. That's why even in the passage I read to you, we find those disciples huddled together in the upper room with the doors locked, it said, for fear of the Jews. That is, they feared they might be next on the cross. They feared death. What changed them from cowering followers of an executed leader to fearless preachers of a risen Lord and King? How did they lose all fear overnight? They met Jesus, who was alive from the dead, and because he rose, their fears evaporated. That small, dispirited band of uneducated men became a force that turned the world upside down in their own generation. And what changes people's lives today? What gives people new joy and vigor is not a precept, but a person. A person who was born, who lived, who died, and contrary to all expectation, who rose again from the dead. We don't ask people to believe in an idea, but to trust in a person, a person whose deeds are recorded in history, a person who has risen and lives forevermore. Dennis Prager has a book called Happiness is a Serious Problem. He wrestles with this question of, of human happiness in light of the realities of life. Um, it's a little gloomy, <laughs> I think. Uh, he suggests that we can be happier by lowering our expectations. Yes, my wife has already become happier. 
and, and you, there's an element of truth here. You know, if your expectations stay low, things are going to turn out better than you expect a lot of the time, and you can celebrate. Well, here is one area where we have to raise our expectations infinitely higher, and our celebration can never be enough to match this good news that Jesus has put death to death. He has conquered it, and now in him we truly live. Without the resurrection, you would have no good news. You would, you would never have Christianity. You might have a sublime ethical system teaches men to be good and to love others, but you would have no power to live that way. But Jesus says the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's not something you can achieve. It's not natural, but supernatural. It's not human, but divine. It's not an accomplishment, but a gift. A gift that we might even now enjoy. Life with a capital L. And you also can see from this that faith in Jesus is a lot more than just knowing the truth and a heartfelt agreement with it or acceptance of it. It is ultimately, you see, nothing less than coming to know him as the risen Lord in whom we also draw power to live new life. So Paul could put it this way, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In conclusion, then, one of the most, uh, one of the more remarkable Christians, I think, of the 20th century was an Indian Christian named Sundar Singh, born about 100 years ago and to a rich Sikh family. He grew up hating Christianity as a foreign religion, once even burning a copy of the Gospels. But then, rather suddenly and also unexpectedly, he came to know Christ himself. And he began traveling through India, Nepal, Tibet, facing every kind of hardship and danger to preach the good news. Makes for exciting reading. On one occasion, Sundar Singh, he visited a Hindu college. And he was asked there by one of the professors what he had found in Christianity that he hadn't found in Hinduism. Sundar Singh replied, I have found Christ. Yes, I know, the lecturer replied impatiently. But what particular principle or doctrine have you found that you did not have before? The particular thing that I have found, replied Sundar Singh, is Christ. That's the good news. You want good advice? You can go to the Sikh house. We have good news. Like Mary, people today, you know, like Mary, they're often surprised to find out that the Lord is there not far from them the whole time. In him we live and move and have our being. He's been there all along. But how wonderful, how triumphant it is when our eyes are open and we see he's there. Rabboni. As the hymn writer says, what's blind 
but now I see. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have received life from you, we have come to give it back to you again. As you have raised us to an everlasting life in Jesus, we present ourselves anew as living sacrifices, as it is written, holy and acceptable in your sight, and pray that you would keep us and transform us. Keep us from being conformed to this world, but transform us through the renewing of our minds that in the knowledge of Christ we might now prove what is your good and acceptable and perfect will. Give us grace to think soberly about the day of our resurrection as you have dealt to each one a measure of faith. 